listening to Theology and Apologetics with Thomas Fretwell. Okay, we are in Joshua chapter 20 and 21 tonight. Let's just open quickly with a word of prayer, and then we'll get straight into this. Dear Father, we thank you, Lord, so much for your word. Uh, We praise you for it, and we ask now that you would just open our eyes, Lord, give us ears to hear what you're saying to us through your word. Speak to us tonight, Father, in Jesus' name and for his sake we pray. Okay, so we're nearing the end of the book of Joshua. We've just got a few more chapters, I believe. Um, We've, for the last, I think for the last time I taught, anyway, we were kind of the whole middle of the book has been going through the division of the land. We've seen all the different tribes have had a separate piece of land apportioned to them. Um, And now we're going to move on to, it's kind of still on the same theme, but it's a little bit more of one of these unusual passages of Scripture. Again, on the first instance, it seems like just another list of cities and names of priests and lands. Um, But we know that the Word of God is the Word of God. It's never trivial. There's nothing in there that's not there for a purpose. Uh, It's our daily bread, and we are feeding on Joshua chapter 20 tonight. So uh, let's see what we can get from this. Let's just read the whole chapter together. Joshua chapter 20, verses 1, it's just nine verses, so I'll read it all for us. It says, Then the Lord spoke to Joshua, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel, saying, Designate the cities of refuge of which I spoke to you through Moses, that the manslayer who kills any person unintentionally, without premeditation, may flee there, and they shall become your refuge from the avenger of blood. He shall flee to one of these cities, and he shall stand at the entrance of the gate of the city and state his case in the hearing of the elders of that city. And they shall take him into the city to them and give him a place so that he may dwell among them. Now if the avenger of blood pursues him, then they shall not deliver the manslayer into his hands, because he struck his neighbour without premeditation, and he did not hate him beforehand." He shall dwell in that city until he stands before the congregation for judgment, until the death of the one who is high priest in those days. Then the manslayer shall return to his own city, to his own house, to the city from which he fled. So they set apart Kadesh in Galilee in the hill country of Naphtali and Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim, Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the hill country of Judah. Beyond the Jordan, east of Jericho, they designated Beza in the wilderness on the plain from the tribe of Reuben, and Ramoth in Gilead from the tribe of Gad, and Golan in Bashan from the tribe of Manasseh. These were the appointed cities for all the sons of Israel, and for the stranger who sojourns among them, that whoever kills any person unintentionally may flee there, and not die by the hand of the avenger, the blood, the avenger of blood, until he stands before the congregation." So these are the famous cities of refuge. We read about them here in Joshua chapter 20. We read about them in Exodus chapter 12. We read about them in Numbers 35. And we read about them in Deuteronomy 19. So for something that seems like one of these slightly obscure Levitical sort of guidelines, they come up a lot in the Bible. Uh, And that should tell us a little something about their importance uh, particularly the way that they, they played a huge part in Jewish tradition later, even kind of, kind of up into the time of Jesus, really. These things were quite talked about in the literature. Let's turn to Numbers 35, and we'll just read one of these other passages, because it says, in the first verse, it says to Joshua, designate the cities of refuge 
which I spoke to you through Moses. So he's making reference to a previously given command. So we'll just read a a little bit of this. It's a long passage, I won't read the whole thing. Numbers 35. It says, Now the Lord spoke to Moses in the plains of Moab by the Jordan, opposite Jericho, saying, Command the sons of Israel that they give to the Levites from the inheritance of their possessions cities to live in. Actually, sorry. I'm not going to read the whole thing. Let's start from (coughs) verse 9, just to save my voice a little bit there, sorry. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, Speak to the sons of Israel, saying to them, When you cross the Jordan into the land of Canaan, then you shall select for yourselves cities to be your cities of refuge, that the manslayer who has killed any person unintentionally may flee there. The city shall be to you as a refuge from the avenger, so that the manslayer may not be may not die until he stands before the congregation for trial. And it goes through in the rest of the passage and it gives a few examples. You know, like if someone's doing some work and the axe head flies off and it hits someone behind him and kills him, then that's a good example of manslaughter, as we would call it. Someone dies, but it's not an intentional crime. Like it said in the passage of Joshua, you haven't hated him beforehand. Now I find that really interesting that that phrase is in there, because do you remember how Jesus associates hate with murder? And we often think that that was something completely new that Jesus was doing there. But there's already quite a good tradition in the Jewish teachings, that hatred led to murder. And Jesus is just following on that tradition and raising that standard there. But if you have hatred in your heart, that's what they would say, you've already murdered them in your heart. Um, but we find this word, if, if someone premeditates, that's murder. If there's an intent to kill someone, then they are guilty. But the cities of refuge are for the, the manslaughter cases. The, the, kind of the ones where there's no premeditated intent to kill. There were six cities of refuge, three on either side of the Jordan River. Now, in the ancient world, what they call retributive justice was very common. Okay? You remember there were no penal systems, there's no detectives, there's no police forces trying to investigate and get justice for the guilty party in these sorts of systems. You had, yes, you usually had monarchs or leaders with guards, but they were primarily there to protect the interests of the rulers of that city. They weren't necessarily concerned with justice for the, the people of the land, so to speak, the, the, common, the common people. So it kind of became very common that if someone killed someone in your family, that someone from your family would avenge that death. And this was sort of how it was done. Now you can kind of see that there's a, a, a way that would have been a deterrent um, for, for some sort of things and it did work like that however in the world particularly in the ancient Near East it was a hugely abused practice sometimes these blood avengers requests were passed down through generations and you know you could just imagine how these things blew up it wasn't just one member entire families going to war for these sorts of things but what is happening here now with the children of Israel the Lord is putting some very definite boundaries on there with these cities of refuge and he's identifying the strict cases where the avenger of blood cannot have any right on these, per- on these people. Um, so there's a very practical judicial purpose to these cities that would have been very necessary in, in the ancient Near East and in the land of Israel, particularly as they were still living with uh, <laughs> a lot of enemies in the land at this time. And they themselves were pretty apt to making trouble for each other. So they would have needed these things. 
we could talk more about that, about capital punishment and these sorts of things. I, I've decided to go another way on this really tonight. I want to take a bit more of a spiritual, uh, typological application to this passage. Um, this is nothing unique to me. This is recognised by most commentators, recognise that there is a deeper kind of spiritual significance and meaning to these cities. Uh, and I think there's good warrant and good cause for them thinking that. To do with some of the little details... Like, why on earth should the death of a priest in Jerusalem mean that the avenger of blood could no longer attack and seek vengeance against the manslayer? Why are those two events connected? This is one of these little things. Uh, the access available to the city of refuge, it was for the foreigner in the land, also for the Israelites. The names of these cities of refuge are all quite significant. We'll look at all of that as we go. Hebrews 10.7 Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. There's a quotation from Psalm 40 there. In the scroll of the book it is written to me. We need to go into that passage with that in our heads. You see, the Bible is the word of God. It reveals Christ to us. He is the grand subject of the Bible. He is what everything points towards. He is its culmination. He is quite literally the word incarnate. So we should not be surprised as we see pictures of Christ all throughout the Bible. Many times they are direct references, calling descriptions of the Messiah. Many times they are what we would call types, pictures that we find in the Bible built up. The Passover lamb is one of these types. We all That's a very easy one, we're familiar with it. We know that Christ was called the Passover lamb. It points to Jesus Christ. There are many of them in the Bible. Um, and I believe these cities of refuge have a lot to teach us about these sorts of things. Now we know that God is often talked about as being a refuge. Psalm 9.9 The Lord also will be a refuge for the oppressed, a refuge in times of trouble. Psalm 46 verse 1 God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in time of trouble. You see, God is a refuge. That's a, quite a familiar theme in the Old Testament. You, if you do a word search on that, there'll be, be loads of references come up. Now, with that in mind, from a New Testament perspective, the cities of refuge provide us, I believe, with a beautiful picture of Jesus Christ, who is ultimately our refuge. Let's just tease this out a little bit, and hopefully you'll see where I'm coming from. The first thing is that really the, the command to have these cities of refuge come from the law. We just read it from Numbers, didn't we? I could have read it from Exodus 2. Uh, we've seen it now in Joshua. The command for them came from the law. And it is the law which decrees judgment and death. The law of Moses, for the wages of sin is death. This is what stands there condemning us in that sense. You could say that the law is the avenger of blood. C.S. Lewis used to say that the moral law is hard as nails. It doesn't give either way. It, that's, that's what, he, what he meant by that was <laughs> basically that it's guilty or not guilty and it doesn't care what your circumstances are. He says that comes later with the Christian gospel but the moral law doesn't get you all the way there. Um, but it's a very good argument and this is the sort of thing we're looking at here. We know that in the Christian theology it is the law that condemns us. We stand under the law. What does Paul say about the law? In Galatians 5.24 he says, therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. So not only is it the law that condemns us, in that law you have basically the signposts. It points, like we said, scroll of the book points to me. It points us to Jesus Christ. It was a tutor, someone who teaches us 
about the coming Messiah. And I think this is exactly what we have in this picture here. It leads people to Christ. It points them towards a city of refuge. And we find that now. Uh, I'll read to you the passage from Deuteronomy. You don't have to turn there. Deuteronomy 19, we have the cities of refuge. Verses 2 and 3, and it says this, You shall set aside three cities for yourself in the midst of your land, which the Lord your God gives you to possess. And you shall prepare the roads for yourself, and divide into three parts the territory of your land, which the Lord your God will give you as a possession, so that any manslayer may flee there. A little verse, you shall prepare the roads for yourself. Let me read to you some, some of the Jewish commentary, and if you read, that they would, go, they would get from this. That meant that the roads to the cities of refuge had to be in excellent condition. They had special people designated from the, from the priests who would be in charge of keeping them there. They had to be 48 feet across. All obstructions, any mounds, any hills, anything that got broken down or on the way, they would be removed from these roads. No mounds, no rivers, no bridges, all these sorts of things. And then at every turn where the road might go, there was a signpost that had to be put up bearing the word refuge. And they would even have certain people appointed, they would call them like runners, who would, in the case of a fleeing manslayer, who would accompany this man and run with him to the nearest city of refuge. So actual, literal signposts along the way pointing to the city of refuge. And for me, I think that's just a beautiful picture of what the law does to us. And that's what Paul means when he says, it is our tutor to lead us to Christ. It points us in the direction of the one who is coming. This is the purpose of the law. Now, John 5, 39. Remember that verse. You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. And these are they which testify of me. Similar verse. Christ is the main subject of the scriptures. Now, that's the law, that's the command. What about the little bit about the high priest? Because that's an unusual detail there. And I believe, again, we have another picture here, a beautiful picture here of, of the cities of refuge. We were under the curse of sin and death, decreed by the law, until when? What was it that freed us? It was the death of a high priest in Jerusalem. The great high priest. This is what the book of Hebrews is about. You read the book of Hebrews, Jesus will be called the high priest many, many times. We were under the law, we had that certificate of debt, a guilty verdict against us. Colossians 2, verses 13 to 14. We were dead in transgressions. He made you alive together with him, having forgiven all of our trespasses, having cancelled out the certificate of debt, consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. That's what the high priest did. His priestly sacrifice freed us once and for all. Hebrews 7, he does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices, talking about Jesus, first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once for all when he offered up himself. Jesus is different to the Levitical high priests. He's the, he's the great high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Slightly different, but the, the same analogy here. You see, the city of refuge, if you read the book of Hebrews with the city of refuge in your head, um, it'll make a lot of sense. Uh, let me read to you Hebrews 6, verses 17 to 20. And I believe this is the background, is Joshua chapter 20 and, and Numbers 35, that the writer of Hebrews has in his mind here. He says, Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, 
confirmed by an oath that the two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation, who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil, where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. And to a Jewish mind, when you have the, fra- the phrase, fled for refuge, and you have a high priest mentioned within a couple of verses, that they're drawing on this background. Okay, It's the background of the cities of refuge that he's talking about here. He fled for refuge. And we know that Christ is our refuge. And he is the great high priest. All of our safety and our security, everything that was offered to those people running, running there, to the city of refuge, we find that in Jesus Christ. And we even find this in the names of these cities. I won't read them again, we've gone through them. I'll just give you the name as we go through. The first city of refuge was called Kadesh. Now that comes from the Hebrew word Kadosh. It's mean, it means holy, holiness, basically. We know Jesus was holy. You remember in Mark chapter 1, when the, uh, the demon said to him, We know who you are. You are the Holy One of God. Hebrews 7 He was holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners. And and of course, he was that lamb without blemish, that Passover lamb. He is holy. The second city was called Shechem. This word comes from a root that means strength. Actually, it kind of speaks of shoulder, quite literally. But in the the tradition, you can see what shoulder spoke of strength. Um, Isaiah 53, verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. And when I think of that, I think of him just carrying that huge crossbeam across his shoulders as he walked down the, the road to the cross there. We know in the future, Isaiah 9, 6, a child is born to us, a son will be given, and on the government will rest on his shoulders. Okay, He carried a cross, but he'll also carry the, the world, so to speak, on his shoulders. Strength. The next city was Hebron. Hebron, the word there means, or comes from a root that means fellowship. 1 Corinthians 1, nine. God is faithful, through whom you were called into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Fellowship. We're called into fellowship through, his, through Jesus Christ, his Son. The next city was called Bezer. This word means, it literally means stronghold, something like that. And the idea of a stronghold is that it's a strong hiding place. It's a place to hide, to, to kind of stay away from trouble. But it was strong. We know that Jesus Christ is referred to as the rock, isn't he? 1 Corinthians 10.4, the rock was Christ. He is a sure foundation. Colossians 3.3, 3, you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God, in that stronghold, in that city of refuge. The next city was Ramoth. This is a, it's a difficult word, but it, the, the two kind of words, it means either uplifting or exalted. Uplifting or exalted. And you can see how this speaks of Jesus. Philippians 2.9 For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow. But it's not only that with this thing. Not only is Jesus exalted. Ephesians 2.6 it says And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Seated us up with him in the heavenly places. Ramoth, uplifted that's what that means. Galon, Galan, however you pronounce it. This, this word comes from happiness or joy. 
the two connotations that this has. Happiness or joy. You remember what the angel said in the infancy narratives. Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, for which will be for all the people. 1 Peter 1 verses 8 to 9. It says, And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. With joy inexpressible. Golan, joy. Now you see, if you put all of them together, you have just a brilliant full picture of everything, not everything, but a huge amount of the stuff that Christ does for us. And these are what the City of Refuge are talking to us about. Jesus Christ is that City of Refuge. It's a beautiful picture. Everything we have is found in Him. And this is a very vital truth to us to understand. Theologians refer to these sorts of things as positional truth. I want to talk a little bit about this today. This is why Paul constantly uses the term in him, or derivative of it, in the Lord, or something like that. Over 164 times, in fact, he uses that phrase just in his, in his letters. In him. Everything we have is found in a city of refuge, the city of refuge, Jesus Christ. All those things we just mentioned in those names, everything we've looked at, everything you could really find in the New Testament, your redemption, your reconciliation, your forgiveness, your justification, your glorification, your deliverance, your acceptance, your entrance and membership into the royal priesthood, your citizenship in heaven, your adoption into the family of God, your fellowship with God, your fellowship with Jesus Christ, your fellowship with your brothers and sisters, your inheritance of the saints, your freedom in Christ, on and on and on that list could go. These are positional truths. Now let me explain what that means. This means, a positional truth means, that it is a reality for you from the moment you are born again. You are placed into that city of refuge and all of that is yours. And it remains yours until you see him in glory. Now that is true even if you do not understand that. And that is true even if your life at that present time does not seem to portray that. That is important to remember about positional truth. It is yours, paid for, bought by Christ. It is him. It is him. Now this is a very practical truth as well. Let me just digress a little bit with this practical application. Many of you will know and will have experienced times in the Christian life where you're kind of soaring in the clouds. Okay? Everything feels like it's going well. It's very easy. You can feel the Spirit of God moving. You're having good Bible studies. You're witnessing with people. It's almost effortless as you move. I'm sure we, we all had times like that. It's their, joy, their joyful times. But yet, on the flip side of that coin, almost without warning, you often quite find yourself right back down on the ground in the mud. Your, your wings or your arms or your legs, whatever analogy you want to use, are dirty. It's hard. You're struggling. It's exhausted. You can't even see the edge of the swamp, so to speak. You don't even have an idea whether you're going forwards or backwards. These times come upon us suddenly, and they're part of the Christian life. Now, you might not be able to understand why you're in that place, but I can promise you two things about those experiences. One, God will very likely use those experiences to strengthen those arms and legs 
so that when he places you on firm footing or back in the sky, again, whatever analogy you want to use, you can run faster or fly higher than you thought you could. This is a principle that you find in the New Testament. And two, God will not let you sink in that swamp. This is because of the positional truth. Remember, these are not things that you are practically trying to achieve. Those things I left, they are yours because you are in the city of refuge. You are in the city of refuge. Now what happens at this time? Let's just go back to those times in the swamp. I think this is just one reason, there's millions of reasons we could, we could look at. It's very easy to become very inward focused when we're in those times. But I don't mean kind of the sort of look at me, I'm so great, kind of prideful look at me kind of thing. I'm kind of talking about the opposite of that where you look at yourself in a self-deprecating way. I'm so terrible, I've ruined everything, what can I do now? I've got to start from the beginning, whatever it may be. It's very easy to slip into that mindset. And I find it's easier to slip into that mindset the longer you've been a Christian, because it takes you more by surprise. And this is a complex issue, why we get into that state. One of the reasons I think, I'll try and explain this, is because... We detach our faith from the object of that faith. And this is important, understand what I'm saying. We detach our faith in all the ways that we talk about it, explain it to people, practically live it out. We, we detach it from the object of that faith. And I'm not talking about worshipping some other god, okay? Um, but the faith is our faith, and we're focusing on what we are doing, living out that faith. There's a time when that's absolutely fine. But it's very easy to detach the word and the concept in our heads anyway of faith from the object of faith. The object of faith is Jesus Christ. It's that city of refuge that you have to be in him. Remember, it doesn't matter if you've got a lot of faith or a little bit of faith. If it's in the right object, then you're secure in the city of refuge. However, if you detach it, even without knowing you're doing it, and again, not talking about false religions or other gods, I'm just talking about the practical day-to-day stuff, When you detach it from the object of faith, something else will fill its place, and it will be you, more than likely. Because at that moment, your faith has become what you are doing for Christ. It has become your conduct. Okay, And faith, in the way we talk about it and think about it, very easily becomes, what are we doing? How has our conduct been lately? And that will tell us about our faith. Now, I'm familiar with that. I'm sure all of you are familiar with that sort of situation. I'm not denying sanctification and any of these processes. I'm simply saying it's very easy for that focus to shift without even realising it. And one of the things that you need to remember at those times is what we call positional truth. Those things that are yours simply by virtue of the fact that you are in a city of refuge, the city of refuge, Jesus Christ. All of those things that you have, that long list I gave, the one that I could have given you a list three times as long as that, they are yours. That is part of the glory of of what Jesus has done for us. So we would ask, what do we do? How can we get ourselves out of these times? There's no simple answer to that. Really, really is not. I would say you need to utterly consume yourself with the character and conduct of Jesus. It's a very simple solution, but we know practically it can be quite hard. 
We need to turn our gaze away from what we are doing and look again at what he has done and what he is doing. This is what Hebrews, again, Hebrews is a great book. Hebrews 12 too, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter or finisher of faith. Author and finisher of your faith. You see, <laughs> whatever you're going through in life, you have to remember, Jesus does not leave work half finished. He doesn't. He does not leave work half finished. He never will. If you have started, author of your faith, he will bring you to completion. Perfecter of the faith. This is Jesus. He is with you in the swamp, he's with you in the sky, simply by virtue of the fact that you are in him. That phrase, in him, it's not a, just a quaint phrase, it's a very theological term. You are organically kind of unified with him in the body of Christ, uh, or in the city of refuge, as we want to call it tonight. And he will bring you to glory. Now you could say, fine, how do I do that? Million dollar question. For me, it's always been, when I find myself in those situations, it's always been the word. Just get back into the word of God. Now a lot of people ask me, I always have people asking me over the years, I don't really know where to start. These are the sort of things. I don't know where to start. There's so much, it's so overwhelming. Um, And I understand that. But I would say if you're you feel like you're, you need the Word of God in order to get out of the swamp, ask yourself some questions. And these are simple questions every Christian should ask themselves. Them. Why did Jesus have to die? What did that accomplish? What did Jesus think of the law? What does he require of us? What does he reveal himself to be in the Bible? Is he God? Is he man? What does it mean for us? You could multiply that list of questions a million times. What I'm getting at is all of these questions are questions that concern positional truth. They are about who he is. And they are there for our encouragement and our instruction. And they are there as that sure foundation, that rock, that stronghold, as we saw in the city of refuge, so that we can go through these times of trouble. They are all related to positional truths. And positional truths are not there for us to accumulate as facts of knowledge. They are there to influence our lives in that practical way. We, we try and flip it round. We try and know, think what we know about God by what happens practically in our lives. But the Bible always presents it. You, know, you learn the truth about God and you practically live it out. That's, that's, that's the way it is in the Bible. Now, the, the kind of opposite of that is... A lot of those questions, if we can't answer those questions, I'm not talking about to anyone else, to yourself, they are truths in the Word of God that are given to help you. But if you, they may be yours, a lot of those truths, but if you haven't taken the time to learn them, then how are they supposed to help you and give you assurance when you need them? This is one of the, one of the things, and that sounds very kind of basic, but I honestly think it's true. If we don't know them, we won't be able to bring them to mind when we're in need of them, and we will do something else. It's the same as when we remove the faith from the object of faith. We will rely on our own ideas, our own understanding, and we'll probably end up swimming further into that swamp. That's what happens. Remember the Word of God, the law, the the Torah, the teachings of God, signposts all over the place, refuge this way, refuge this way. Walk after me, Jesus says. Follow after me. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet. This is the same principle that we see here. If you come 
to the holy oracles of God, the living and enduring word. We talked about that a while back. Seeking answers to those questions about Jesus Christ, you will not return the same person. The Bible promises that to you. Because when you study these things, when the word of God makes you search them out, you won't be focusing on yourself anymore when you come away from that. You won't be focusing on all your successes and the great things you've done. You won't be focusing on your failures. You really wouldn't really want to because you will have such a nice picture of the glory of the person who was revealed in those scriptures, the Lord Jesus Christ, that city of refuge, that high priest who died for us, that you won't want to put yourself in that picture. This is why John says, I must decrease, but he must increase. That is the principle that we have in faith. It seems backwards, but that's what it is. We renew our strength in him. Famous verse, Isaiah chapter 40, 28 to 31. Do you not know, have you not heard, the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, he does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. He gives strength to the weary, and to him who lacks might he increases power, And though youths grow weary and tired and vigorous young men stumble badly, yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. Renew your strength in Jesus. Just like that eagle soaring through the sky again, you will renew your strength when you come back to Jesus in that way. And I believe this is really the main lesson of the cities of refuge, that great high priest. And one of the things, remember, it was the death of the high priest that freed freed them, as in they could leave the city of refuge and go back to themselves. But our high priest is different, because he died, yes, but then something else happened. He rose again. And he didn't just rise to die again. He rose and he ever lives to make intercession for us. He is now eternally living And that means you will always be in that city of refuge. There's no way way out, so to speak, in that that sense. You are in the city of refuge. Now let's look at chapter 21. But we won't read it all, we'll just briefly. uh, This this really is just a list. I'll summarise it, and there's just a couple of points I want to make out. So chapter 21, we've looked at the cities of refuge. These were specific cities for those judicial purposes, and they were the cities, I believe, that teach us a lot about Jesus Christ. And then verse chapter 21, we basically have the 48 cities designated for the Levites. You remember the Levites did not get an apportion of the land. The Levites just got cities within the different tribal allotments of the land. And we talked last time about what a great picture that is of the church and the priestly ministry we have in the church because it was the Levites who were in charge of the Word of God, in charge of the the service, the worship, all these sorts of things, for teaching the children of Israel about God. And this is a great picture of the church. The the Lord has set up, he tells us to go out into all the world preaching the gospel, where the gospel is preached. When you get believers come together, you get these little churches, local body of Christ, popping up all over the world, usually in, in, you know, in the midst of people who do not know God. This is a very, this is priesthood, basically, the sort of things. It's a great picture. The church acts as salt and light all over the world, just as the Levites were supposed to do. Um, there's just a few verses I want to highlight at the end of chapter 21. Basically, all of these is the same sorts of thing. Huge amounts of names. We're all too hot for me to try and get everyone to read all of these now. 
that's what you've got there. Let's just go to verses 43 to 45, the end of the chapter, and we'll just finish with that. So the Lord gave Israel all the land which he had sworn to give to their fathers, and they possessed it and lived in it. And the Lord gave them rest on every side according to all that he had sworn to their fathers, and no one of all their enemies stood before them. The Lord gave all their enemies into their hand. Not one of the good promises which the Lord had made to the house of Israel failed. All came to pass. Verses 43 to 45. Now, this doesn't mean that there weren't still areas to conquer. You've got to interpret these, these verses uh, in light of other scriptures. There were still battles to fight. What it's really saying is that God has kept his promise, even if at this stage Israel had not actually appropriated all of the promises. God was faithful in what he had promised. And it's that final verse that I want us to really go away with in our hearts. Not one of the good promises which the Lord had made to the house of Israel failed. Not one promise of the word of God will fail. How many promises are there in the Bible? Over 5,000 by some people's counts. 3,000 of them relating to Christians maybe. There's a lot of promises. The question is how many of them do we know? goes back to that issue. So many of them are ours in Christ because of what he is and what he has done. And he asks us to search them out. Where do you think we get that joy and explicable where we cry out with praise and thanksgiving and worship? Let me finish by just quoting 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20 to 22. It's about the promises of God. And it says, For as many as are the promises of God, and we know there are a lot of promises of God, it says, in him, you notice that phrase, I hope you've all clicked onto that phrase, that's positional truth again. In him, they are yes. You see? All the promises, in him, they are yes, because he is the city of refuge, the great high priest. Therefore also, through him, is our amen to the glory of God through us. Through him, not through us. In him, They are yes. Now he who establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us is God, who also sealed us and gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge. You see, the promises of God are what we can hold on to because he sealed us. That was one of his promises. We would be sealed until the day of redemption. If you are a believer in Christ, I'm not talking about if you go to church or if you're religious, if you have personally fled and ran to that city of refuge, given your life to Jesus Christ, accepted him as your saviour, these promises are yours. You have his spirit living within you. It is the down payment, the deposit, that you will be with him in glory. You are sealed. A seal is something that you, would, that you put on something when you do not want it broken. And they usually had a stamp of authority on them. Your seal comes from God the Father was paid for and stamped on you by Jesus Christ. It cannot and will not be broken. He is the city of refuge, the stronghold. This is our God, and these are the promises of God. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you so much just for the, the teaching here about the cities of refuge, for what the Word of God reveals to us about your Son. We'd ask that he would just be the desires of our heart, Lord, that you would just put in us that supernatural desire for him, that we would follow him, live for him, Lord God, and that you would just anoint us by your Spirit, fill us, Father, with supernatural power to do this, Lord.
We pray that now for this church. We pray that we would um, just have time communing with you before we meet together again on Sunday. In Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more resources, please go to thomasfretwell.com.